1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student-athletes upside down. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello. Today we're zooming in to explore the intricate atomic makeup of metal alloys that have complex crystalline arrangements and which can literally make or break structures that are integral to our everyday lives. Harry Bedacia is Professor of Metallurgy at Queen Mary University of London and Emeritus Tartar Steel Professor of Metallurgy at the University of Cambridge. He's been described as a steel innovator, researching the untapped possibilities of alloys and developing new ones to deliver a whole host of useful real-world applications, from rail tracks to military armour. Harry's prolific work has earned him a knighthood. He even has one of his projects on show at London Science Museum, an ongoing experiment in alloy transformation that will apparently take a 100 years to deliver results. We'll be coming back to that. In this programme, that is, not in a century's time. But his achievements have required a good measure of determination, as well as hard work. As we'll hear, he's not a man to let challenges or naysayers stand in his way. Professor Sir Harry Badesia, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you very much, Jim. Now, you've previously compared the tiny nanostructural changes that take place when you're manipulating a metal's composition to a dance, a sort of choreography of atoms. What did you mean by that? So, you know, if you look at ballet dancers in Swan Lake, for example, they move in a very systematic, choreographed manner, a disciplined movement. And similarly, atoms, they can all move in the same direction at the same instant of time. And that has a different consequence to chaotic dancing, where people move in a haphazard manner. And similarly, atoms break all their bones, rearrange in a random way into a new pattern. So you're a choreographer as well as a scientist. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about arrangement of atoms later on. I mentioned railways in the introduction. You've developed a type of steel called bainite, which was used for the tracks in the Channel Tunnel. We'll come to the science behind it a little later, but can you just first explain briefly what is it about this material that makes it so perfect for train tracks? Mm -hmm. So there are two aspects of rails which are really important. You know, if you actually push on a surface, then the peak stress is under the surface, not at the contact. And if you have a wheel going over a rail frequently, then that stress oscillates and eventually fatigue leads to a bit dropping off. And that's not a good thing at all. And um, the second aspect is wear resistance. We want the rail to last for a very long time. So, for example, the Bainitic Rail in the Channel Tunnel has already achieved more than a billion gross tons of traffic without any need for grinding. And the wear resistance comes from the fact that the crystals inside the Bainitic Rail are extremely fine. And the finer the crystals, the stronger the material is and wear resistance. There are actually two kinds of crystals inside this particular rail. One of those, which is the strong variety, has uh, atoms of iron located at a corner of a cube and in the middle of the cube, whereas the tough one, and by toughness I mean you know, it's able to absorb energy right. on impact, mm. that has iron atoms at the corners of the cube and at the face centers. And that different arrangement makes a huge difference to the properties. And it's a distinction between hard and tough. Correct. A hard material isn't necessarily all you want. You also want it to survive. Absorb impact, energy absorb on impact. Energy. Right, so right, it right. makes it a safe engineering material. Right. 
Well, Harry Badesia, let's talk about your childhood. You were born in 1953 in Kenya to Indian parents. What had brought them to East Africa? India was a British colony. Kenya was also a British colony. And they needed skilled craftsmen. And my family comes from a, a carpenter background, a carpenter caste, if you like. Yes. Uh, so my father was very skilled in that sort of work. So he came over and um, participated in the construction of hotels and so forth. And that's how they established themselves in uh, Kenya. But I gather that after a while, your father found a, a different job. Yes, uh, he joined Exide Batteries, which sold batteries, manufactured somewhere else, but you had to maintain them. And uh, so they had a laboratory where, you know, you could measure the specific gravity of the fluids inside the battery and check, you know, how long it has to go before you have to replace it and so forth. In fact, I gather you would visit your father at work at the factory with your siblings. Were those visits what sparked your interest in science? I think that's absolutely right. Uh, to learn how something works and to see what's inside the battery, you could do that in those days. Uh, nowadays, if you look at the batteries in a computer, they look like a polythene bag. But uh, in those days, you could actually figure out what things are made out of in the batteries and so on. You were the second of four children. You have a brother and two sisters. What do you remember about your childhood in Kenya? It was uh, very happy. The weather was perfect. Uh, mango trees, banana trees everywhere. You know. This is outside Nairobi. Were you surrounded by wildlife? Yes. My school, in fact, was located uh, at what was then the border of Nairobi. And I remember very clearly one year when uh, there was a severe drought in that region. Uh, we had ponds in our school. And we had lions visit the ponds to drink water in the school. You were then presumably sort of trapped in your classroom. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I understand you did well at school, but you had a bit of a disruptive streak. I'm afraid that's true. I admit it fully. I still have my school reports, yeah, which explain that, you know, I should talk a lot less. So we used to have a system of detention, which means over the weekend you would have to cut grass with a scythe. And of course, you know, if you had to go to school at the weekend, then your parents would ask why. So there's a double whammy. The school is putting you in detention and your parents know that you haven't been good at school. Right. So you couldn't hide no, the fact that you, you had detention. Absolutely not. <laughs> Meanwhile, at home, you were cultivating this early fascination with science. I gather you set up your own lab at home. That's correct. So we used to get pocket money and I uh, bought a chemistry set to start with. Uh, and in those days, uh, you know, the safety regulations weren't as strong as uh, they are now. So you could actually go and buy chemicals like caustic soda and, and yeah. so forth. Wasn't there some issue once you swallowed some caustic soda? Yes, I pipetted caustic soda, sodium hydroxide, into my mouth by mistake. And of course, that's uh, quite uh, burning. Yes, sensation. yeah. So I quickly spat it out and then I decided okay you know caustic soda I should put some sort of acid in there. right alkali plus so, acid so, so I put citric acid and it didn't help at all okay <laughs> so it took a while for the sensations to come back well that's science for you you have mm. to experiment well Harry in 1963 of course Kenya got its independence and that changed things for your family very much. Uh, so over time, after independence, the Kenyan government decided that if you're not a Kenyan citizen, and my parents were British citizens, because India and Kenya were British colonies at mm. the time, 
then uh, after two years you would lose your job and you train somebody to take over your job who is a Kenyan citizen. Right. So we were left without a job for two years and we couldn't actually come to the UK because the Labour government of the day decided to put a quota even though the numbers by today's standards were really quite small, you know, of the order of 30,000 in all. So that was a bit of a traumatic period uh, for for us. Mm. Well, your family did finally emigrate to the UK in 1970 when you were 16. How did you feel about leaving Kenya, coming to London at a time of growing racial tensions in Mm -hmm. the UK? When we came to London, uh, we were living in an area called East Ham, which was fine. But uh, at that time, the National Front was very active uh, in Dagenham and so on. So we basically kept out of the way whenever we sensed a problem. Mm. Mm. Your family ended up living above a shop in East Ham. And after a few months, you got a job as a technician with BOC, British Oxygen Company, in their metallurgical quality control lab in North London. Which were amazing, actually. And I learned quite a lot of metallurgy there. Well, I mean, at this point, Mm. you weren't at school. You had no formal scientific qualifications. But someone in the company's HR department spotted your potential. Yes, so the human resources person in the company, he came to me and said, look, you should be studying. And then I got day release to attend the East Ham College of Science and Technology to do an ordinary national certificate in sciences, which was very nice. That college had very good teachers. In and general. that's equivalent to A-levels. If you get a distinction, that's equivalent right. to A-levels. In the meantime, you know, there was a lot of industrial strife in those days. So that particular plant had to close down. But I got transferred to another one of uh, the companies in Waltham Cross on welding. And to my astonishment, you know, the same HR officer came over and said, look, you should do a degree. Going beyond the call of duty, I think. So I joined the City of London uh, Polytechnic and the company also sponsored me for that. Uh, so I would, uh, during the summer vacations, I would go back to the right. laboratories in Waltham Cross. You graduated in 1976. You could have then just gone back to the company to work full time. But one of the examiners on your degree course had another suggestion. That's correct. Professor Robert Honeycomb, who was the head of the Department of Metallurgy in Cambridge, he was the external examiner. You know, all degrees have external examiners. And he suggested that I should join Cambridge to do a PhD in his big research group. But when I looked at the procedures, it was too complicated. You know, there were colleges and all foreign concepts. Okay, Mm. so I didn't bother. But my tutor, his name was David Peacock, and I still communicate with him. He got uh, mad at me. Uh, He said, why haven't you applied? And I explained, but he said, you must apply to Cambridge. And he helped me do that. Right. And this all happened quite quickly. I mean, just a few years before this, you'd been getting detentions and avoiding (laughs) lions in Kenya. How did it feel arriving in Cambridge? It felt uh, very good in many, many respects. So people were more interested in knowledge. And I'm not just talking about science, but all disciplines. So you realise that, you know, there's an awful lot more out there than your speciality. Your PhD was on something called retained austenite in steels. Can you just explain what retained austenite means? So, you know, the very tough crystal that I mentioned earlier with uh, atoms of iron at the corners and at the face centres, that's actually called austenite. 
Uh, normally it exists only at very high temperatures, or over 900 degrees centigrade. If you cool the steel or do things to it, then it will change. And the picture I think people should have in mind when you talk about these crystalline arrangements is it's a crystal lattice, like, like a grid work, you know, where the atoms are arranged in these equally spaced yes. points. So it's a pattern, in effect. It's like wallpaper. And that pattern needs to adapt to whatever temperature, pressure, etc. you subject it to. So austenite transforms from a high temperature to the body-centered cubic structure, but some of it remains it doesn't want to change. Some of it from the high temperature states. That's correct. Right, and right. that's called retained austenite. Okay, uh, so it retains that high temperature structure. structure it doesn't, absolutely. doesn't lose it all. Uh, you were investigating how the nature of this austenite that's retained in the steel depends on the processes it goes through beforehand. Mm-hmm. And there are two types. It's either called bainitic or martensitic mm-hmm. transformations. Now, I can say the words bainitic and martensitic, uh, but you're going to have to explain this because these changes to the way the atoms in steel arrange themselves, these transformations when steel is heated, cooled, it's hugely complicated, isn't it? At first sight, it is hugely complicated. Not to you, I'm sure. No, no, but uh, <laughs> I think to any, anybody. So think about the arrangement at high temperatures. Right. If you cool so rapidly that there is no possibility of a composition change because, you know, normally it's not just iron, but it's a mixture of many different things. You cool it rapidly so that there is no diffusion at all. No movement of the atoms. No chaotic movement of atoms. Then it's called martensite because it inherits the chemical composition of the high temperature phase. Right. It doesn't like those atoms, uh, foreign atoms, but it's forced to inherit them. And that gives special properties to martensite. It's a very useful crystalline. And we say phase. foreign atoms because this is an alloy. Correct. Right. Yeah, we almost never use pure iron. It usually has carbon and typically twenty different right. elements in mm. in dilute concentrations. So that's one way: completely diffusionless, no change in chemical composition. The second bainite that happens at a significantly higher temperature, and that's the problem, because it forms at a higher temperature. We didn't know whether the carbon actually moves chaotically during the formation of these crystals and other elements move chaotically or not. And that was a really huge problem because you can't do any calculations if you don't know what the atoms are doing. And you were trying to show that this bainite, this bainitic steel, could be produced reliably. Yes. So my project, PhD project, was actually sponsored by the Ministry of Defence to design a, a bainitic alloy for tank gun barrels. Right. But it wasn't possible to do that simply because the theory was in a real mess. Okay, it was a huge controversies existed in the literature and uh, nobody could agree on the actual mechanism. Mm. That's what I focused on. The mechanism of the bainite transformation, the atomic mechanism. But what you were doing was was also controversial. I, I, in fact, I gather that neither Robert Honeycomb nor your supervisor, David Edmonds, thought that you were on the right track. You were even told at one point, I don't know which one of them, that if you go down alleyways, you're likely to get mugged. That's absolutely right. Said in a jovial atmosphere. Right. <laughs> uh, so basically, uh, Professor Honeycomb had written a book and the description of the Bainite transformation was completely against what I thought was the right mechanism. But then I went on to write my own book, which was a a really comprehensive treatment on bainite, and I gave him a copy. Sometime later, he came and saw me and said, look, um, we're putting together a second edition, and I will give you carte blanche to rewrite the chapter on bainite. So he came round in the end. Well, uh, yes. And we also added three more 
chapters. And the fifth edition is due to come out in January. But of course, it took time for the wider community to accept your work and your findings. A big chunk of your thesis was published uh, in papers in 1980. But there were entrenched views, I gather, in academia and industry around what Bayonite was, how it should be treated. What was the initial wider response to your work? So when we started publishing, uh, particularly the group in Carnegie Mellon University... In the US? Yes, uh, they uh, took great objection to what I was proposing (laughs) and went out of their way to first try and make me change my point of view. (laughs) Okay, Then they started writing letters to journals whenever I would publish a paper explaining that this is all wrong. I mean, I don't understand why there was such strong feeling against your ideas. Don't forget, scientists are humans. Yeah, okay. yeah, <laughs> so, I guess so. So, yeah. you know, if, if they have uh, proposed an idea over a long period of time, uh, they normally would not give up easily. Although, to be honest, you know, we are after the truth. We'll come back to that resistance you faced, but just staying with your career path for now, after finishing your PhD, you got a two-year fellowship with the Science Research Council, during which you developed a theory that brought together, for the first time, an important series of these transformations, these phase changes in steel. So the bainite and martensite are not the only products which form from the high-temperature austenite. There are many transformations, and that's what makes steels so incredibly useful. You can control its properties by choosing your transformations. The problem was, why are these all different? And when do they happen? And so forth. There was no overriding model which would predict them without making them sequential in some way, which doesn't make sense. You know, right. you don't have to say, OK, this transformation will start at this temperature and then this one will take over. Things don't happen like that. You know, they can happen simultaneously but at different rates, for example. And therefore, you can predict the start and the stop of the transformation and many other characteristics. Mm. I was interested in rationalizing them. So I created a theory and expressed it in computer programs, which are now used widely. Mm. So that was fun. That was real good fun. <laughs> fun for a metallurgist. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I guess I, we should qualify that. Mm. Well... Here's where we come back to the resistance to your work, Harry. In 1981, as your research fellowship came to an end, you applied for a temporary lecturer role at Cambridge University. You didn't know it at the time, but I gather there was a concerted effort from some parts of uh, the metallurgy community to stop you getting that job. That's absolutely right. Uh, uh, Someone even visited the department to talk with the head of department. I didn't know about this, as you explained, but others did. And uh, Professor Morris Cohen from MIT, for example, and uh, Jack Christian from Oxford, and the head of department as well. They wrote letters to the university in my support and saying this is not the right way to do things. Well, you did get that job. Good news for you, getting this lectureship at Cambridge. But I gather the teaching side of things was a bit of a baptism of fire for you. Very much so. In those days, uh, you often hired people because of their research. Yes. And... uh, I hadn't had any experience in teaching at a higher degree level, and it was a complete disaster. I I mean, I could feel it. It was a complete disaster. And, uh, of course, the students attending diminished in numbers and so forth. Cambridge University, they actually sent me on a course on how to teach at the University of Surrey's Higher Education Institute. Yes. It totally changed my uh, teaching abilities. Did you enjoy teaching? 
Yes, uh, after that course, of after course. That course yeah. <laughs> Once you knew you had students who weren't going to just uh, drop off. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the thing about teaching uh, is you actually learn new things by yeah, teaching. We, we always say that, don't yeah. we, in academia. If, if, if you want to learn a subject, teach Absolutely. it. <laughs> well, your Cambridge career continued to progress. You were made a reader in physical metallurgy in 1994, a full professor in 1999. And it was around this time that you started working with industry. Yes, so uh, the bayonetic rail steel, for example, I was asked to give a talk at British Steel. And I was asked, look, can we make a rail steel out of this? And uh, as an academic, you say yes, (laughs) without (laughs) realising. So obviously you can't install a completely new industrial plant because that is just too expensive. So we designed a steel using calculations, which could be manufactured on the same plant and they made it and then of course you have to spend a huge amount of money something like 17 million pounds in those days to qualify it properly because it's a safety critical application Mm. and was it clear back then just how big an impact it would have i would say no but uh, the first moment that you realize something important is happening is when you see you know thousands of tons of rail with that structure in the yard so i went to the actual rail manufacturing plant and saw that being produced Uh, Then, of course, came the installation in the channel tunnel, which is when you feel the happiest Mm. and uh, most rewarding experience. Well, in 1997, what you described as a serendipitous moment led to another major breakthrough, something called Super Bayonite. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So I had a wonderful uh, postdoc called Francisca Caballero, who is now a a big professor in uh, Spain. And uh, what we were doing is wanted to look at the retained austenite, the stuff that doesn't change. So we made a composition of that retained austenite. She put it into a furnace, took out the hot, red hot steel and put it onto another piece of metal. And she realized there was sound coming from the steel. So as it was cooling and the crystals were forming, Ah. you could get acoustic emissions. And she came to me and said, look, uh, we've got the song of steel. And when we looked at it, the crystals of bainite were finer than carbon nanotubes, much, much finer than a hair. Yes. Okay. And you could produce these crystals in huge quantities of steel. So again, it's back to this, the smaller the crystal, the better. Correct. The, the steel, That's that, hence the super bainite. Yeah. It's a combination of those very small crystals and the retained austenite toughness and strength. And this super bainite actually forms the basis of your 100-year experiment I mentioned earlier that's been in the Science Museum in London since 2004. Can you talk me through what that involves, what it might eventually show 100 years' yes, time? Yes, yeah. So our calculations for this uh, super bainite indicated that there's no lower temperature no lower limit. So you could actually form it at room temperature after taking from 1,000 degrees centigrade. Nobody ever imagined that would be the case. But the alloy would take 100 years to transform. That's what our calculations showed. You mean when it reaches room temperature, it's still transforming? That's right. This is very slow. (laughs) Very, very, very slow. Uh, The theory has predicted this, and therefore we need to see. So we completely polished flat the piece of steel, a mirror finish, because when these crystals form, they cause upheavals on the surface, very large upheavals. And we sealed it in an inert glass tube, and it's archived in the Science Museum, beginning 2004, finished 2104. Right. We're unlikely to be around to to check if this experiment is successful, I guess. But you know, I'll haunt you if you don't. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Harry, in, in 2005, you were approached to help with a major project in South Korea. POSTECH, the Pohang University of Science and Technology, asked if you could help them set up from scratch a graduate institute for ferrous technology. Yes, I was asked to set up a computational metallurgy laboratory. No building, no people and uh, no equipment. So really from scratch? Really from scratch, but mm-hmm. the money was there. So I spent 10 years, spending four months a year, leave of absence from Cambridge to develop this laboratory. And we did it. And um, one of the things uh, is that I taught many people how to play squash. Uh-huh. They even created <laughs> two squash courts over there. <laughs> and, you know, I beat everybody for nine years. And in the 10th year, I noticed that I was getting beaten more frequently. So I decided to leave. <laughs> so, <laughs> that wasn't the real reason. But why I, hired, uh, I hired a particular professor called uh, Dong Wusso, who is now in charge of that and doing mm. a really good job. Meanwhile, back at Cambridge, you were appointed the first Tata Steel Professor of Metallurgy. Tata Steel, mm. big Indian multinational company. A few years later, in 2015, you became Sir Harry, receiving a knighthood for services to science and technology. I gather they had a rather nice moment at the ceremony with Prince William. Yeah, he asked me, you know, so how do you go about designing a steel? So I said to him, you know, we try and calculate as much as possible, and frequently that doesn't work. So we try again. And he said to me, that's the nature of research, isn't it? (laughs) Very good. Well, he can learn more if he listens to this program, of course. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Last year, after more than four decades at Cambridge, you moved. You joined Queen Mary University of London as a professor of metallurgy there. Tell me about that decision. So Cambridge and Oxford at the moment have exemption from the national law that there is no retirement age. In Cambridge and Oxford, you have to retire at 67. Right. So uh, I retired. And uh, a colleague of mine, Colin Humphreys, who uh, you, you know, Our I think. guest, yeah, yes. Colin Humphreys said, look, uh, why don't you join Queen Mary University? So I went over there and had a chat. And by the time I got home, I had a contract. They were very fast. So that staved off retirement. <laughs> Correct, yeah. And it's a very nice place, actually. Well, and for you, clearly you have a lot more you want to do in metallurgy. I gather one of the subjects you've been considering recently is the issue of pollution. Many listeners will know that steel production Mm. generates massive carbon emissions, but I gather you have a possible solution. Yes, uh, so I think when I wrote my book on bainite in steels, we were producing something like 500 million tonnes of steel. Now it is totally mad. It's about 2.2 billion tonnes per annum and rising. Worldwide? Worldwide. It accounts for 7% of all the CO2 produced. Wow. And that is simply not sustainable. The problem is so severe that if you don't do something about it, then it will become irreversible. And the poorest people in the world will suffer the most. So, uh, my idea is actually very simple. And it can be done in four years to cut steel use by 25%. And it's based on real studies and real constructions where we show that by using better steel which already exists, you can cut the amount of steel that you use. In some cases, even a 70% reduction because manufacturing methods have also changed. Component manufacturing methods have changed. So to do this is very simple. You legislate and you tax on the steel content of anything produced domestically or imported. So the idea is that, you know, by legislating or or taxing the amount of steel used in Mm -hmm. industry, people are forced to use what is more expensive but less. That's absolutely right. So it's common sense, you know. 
But the vast number of people who use steel are not looking into this. By making steel more expensive, they will think a little bit harder. Forces them to think harder, yeah. yeah. Okay, so clearly no plans for retirement just yet. I haven't asked you much about what you get up to in your spare time. I hear you're a keen cyclist. Yes, uh, so 100 miles, 60 mile bike rides with a group of us. We trained for it as well before each ride because, you know, getting old now. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the other thing uh, I love is squash. I was going to ask, that didn't put you off being beaten by all those younger Koreans? No, um, so you have to choose the people you play against. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Harry Badesia, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thank you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. 